Good evening, and welcome to another episode of Yale Cancer Answers. I'm Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guests, Tania Sharoff and Alex McClellan, who are both genetic counselors at Yale Cancer Center. They're here with me tonight to discuss the role of a genetic counselor in honor of Genetic Counselor Awareness Day, which is November 4th. Thank you so much both for being here with me tonight. Thanks for having us. We're really excited to be here. So, Tanaya, maybe I'll start with you and you can tell me a little bit about your background. What kind of training does it take to become a genetic counselor and, and what is it exactly that you do? Sure. Um, so I have now been working here as a genetic counselor for over two years um, at the Smilo Cancer Genetics and Prevention Program. Um, I started off as someone who got a bachelor's degree in biotechnology um, and then a master's degree in human genetics um, at Sarah Lawrence College. Um, a training for genetic counselor typically is a two years master's degree where you learn an area of different subjects. Um, So we are really kind of going into disease level where we're looking at all different hereditary um, syndromes. And that is not limited to cancer. uh, But during the training, we learn about other specialties as well, which includes pediatric genetics, um, cardiovascular genetics, prenatal genetics, and so on. And then we also learn a lot of psychosocial skills and counseling skills during our training. No, go ahead, please. Um, So my area of expertise currently, which has been my area of interest, is hereditary cancer. Um, And genetic counseling really involves um, kind of talking to our patients um, and meeting them to discuss their personal and their family histories and offering a personalized risk assessment um, and discuss, you know, whether we see risk factors that warrant genetic testing. Um, discuss their risks and benefits and the appropriate testing options and implications of test results with our patients. Um, And, you know, we're trained and specialized in counseling skills as well as medical genetics so that we can thoroughly analyze that medical literature and the medical history and then answer their question of what testing to consider and what's the right option for them. And Alex, how about you? What's your background and expertise? How did you come to the field of cancer genetics? Yeah. Um, so I've been working as a cancer genetic counselor for over two years now, same as Tanaya. Um, and I had heard about genetic counseling in, in passing. And of course, I wanted to Google it right away. Uh, it sounded very interesting. And I was very captivated and still am captivated by how this field combines science with working and helping patients. And um, Tanaya and I talk about it all the time, but <laughs> we learn something new every day on this job. So for cancer genetics, I think it's really interesting because uh, for folks who have a family history or a personal history of cancer, it can be very scary and overwhelming. Um, They're meeting with a lot of doctors already. Um, They're concerned about themselves or their family members. So we try to create a niche where we can help them and maybe uh, put their cancer in a hereditary cancer perspective um, for some patients maybe 5 to 10% of them. But it's been really rewarding to work with this group of people and uh, very helpful. And it's something that is more routinely done now. But if you were to talk to us 15 years ago, it uh, might have been a little newer on the scene. And so, Tanaya, back to you. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about 
How do patients come to see you? Do all patients with cancer see a genetic counselor? Or are there specific groups of patients that um, are more uh, in need of your services? Um, So patients do come to us in various different ways. Um, I feel that one of the more common ways that patients do come to us are when they're referred by their healthcare providers. It might be a PCP or another physician um, when they kind of see that there is something going on with respect to cancer personally or in their family history, um, they may place a referral for genetic counseling. Um, Some patients are self-motivated and they kind of find their way here um, by themselves. And genetic counseling and testing, you know, is really reasonable for individuals um, who do have certain patterns of cancers in their families or have certain medical histories that weren't genetic testing. Um, And, you know, some examples of that would be, you know, individuals who have very young ages at diagnosis of cancer um, and or have family histories with people being diagnosed at young ages. Um, So, for example, for someone with breast cancer at 90 versus breast cancer diagnosed at 35, you know, those would be two different conversations. And we also look, you know, for people who have family history of multiple people with cancers of either the same type or unusual types of cancers like ovarian or pancreatic cancer or breast cancers in males. Um, And then genetic testing or counseling, you know, can also be helpful for people who come from certain ethnicities or backgrounds like Ashkenazi Jewish ethnicity. Um, So those would be some people where genetic counseling might be really beneficial to evaluate their family and personal histories and see if genetic testing is warranted. So, Alex, we've been using the terms genetic counseling and genetic testing kind of as one combined term. Is there a difference between the two? Does everybody who comes to see you as a genetic counselor also get testing or how does that work? Yeah. Um, So not everyone will move forward with genetic testing and it's an individualized decision. But um, to differentiate between the two, genetic counseling is really all about helping patients understand their genetic information. So sometimes we meet with a patient before ordering that genetic testing to discuss some of those risk factors Tanaya was mentioning and how they relate to, or not, um, to known hereditary cancer syndromes. So we can talk about testing options, outcomes of testing. Uh, By the time they leave their appointment, if that is something that they do want to move forward with, they'll feel more confident about what information they're getting on the other end of things. Uh, But other times, people have gotten genetic testing, maybe through an outside provider or something that they've done um, themselves, and we can help interpret that information for them to make sure that they're receiving the appropriate care uh, based on those genetic test results to make sure that they were tested for the appropriate things. And genetic counseling is um, critical and crucial to help ensure patients are Um, doing all of the right things from the information we can get from genetic testing. So it can be tricky to interpret test results in the context of someone's personal and family history, but um, that's what we try to focus on in the session because we understand it's different for everyone. And so, Tanaya, when we talk about genetic testing, just a few questions. First, How do you decide what test is appropriate? And second, is genetic counseling and genetic testing covered by insurance? Um, (laughs) So 
you know, with genetic testing, um, there are several hereditary cancer syndromes out there. There are several genetic testing options out there. And, you know, initially it started out as testing patients for a couple of genes like BRCA1 and BRCA2. And now we know it goes beyond that. Um, so for our patients, we really start by looking at our patients' personal medical history and their family history to kind of create a list of, you know, maybe potential syndromes that we might be suspicious of. Um, or almost like create a differential diagnosis for ourselves. And, you know, some examples might be in families who have several females or, you know, even males with breast cancers or ovarian cancer. Um, a syndrome on our differential would be hereditary breast and ovarian cancer syndrome, which does occur due to changes in BRC1 and 2 genes. Um, but having said that, you know, there are multiple genes today that we are aware can also increase the risk of breast cancer. So we're testing multiple genes at the same time rather than going gene by gene. Um, you know, in people with early onset colon or uterine cancers, we would be thinking about Lynch syndrome um, or people with multiple polyps, you know, there might be other hereditary colon polyposis syndrome. So we really look into and dig into, um, you know, our patient's medical and family history to determine really what's the, um, what's the clinical testing option for them that would be kind of most informative um, in, in their setting. Um, in terms of insurance, it's tricky. Um, there isn't really a clear black and white answer. Um, with genetic testing, you know, we have national guidelines. Um, we, we call them NCCN guidelines. And so we are typically genetic counselors use them to determine whether genetic testing is clinically indicated for someone or not. And a lot of insurances do also follow these NCCN guidelines as they are kind of determining the, the criteria for coverage of these genetic testing. And a lot of insurance companies will follow. Um, there might be some that kind of have different criteria as well. So when a patient comes and meets with us, um, you know, looking at their personal and family history, we then go back to these insurances and see if there are guidelines laid out for us. And if they are, um, you know, we would, you know, be, be telling the patient that, you know, they do meet um, the insurance's criteria for testing as well. Um, and so we do have ways to ensure that the patient is, um, you know, being covered for the test or they know kind of what to um, expect in terms of cost. Um, and then sometimes, you know, it can get a little bit more tricky when we don't have guidelines for testing. Tanaya, I also wanted to add that for folks who, for whatever reason, might not meet their insurance criteria. So if we're clinically suspicious for a hereditary cancer syndrome, um, but insurance doesn't even have guidelines for that syndrome, um, we always talk about a self-pay option uh, for genetic testing. And that can be done typically around $250 at this time, but that's always an option for folks who might not meet clear-cut guidelines as far as we know. Um, but again, thinking about how how uh, we've how far we've come in the past fifteen years or so, the price of testing has really gone down. Yeah, for sure. And so, Alex, when when people come in and are, are thinking about getting genetic testing, you know, one of the questions that they may ask is, well, what are the ramifications of this information? I mean, is it just for me to know that? I have a genetic mutation that put me at increased risk of getting the cancer that I already have? If so, kind of so what? Um, or is there other 
information that you glean from that genetic information that might have implications for that patient's care or for their family. Can you talk a little bit more about um, what you do with the information that you get and how that can really impact care? Absolutely. Yeah, I, th- I think we do get that question a lot because folks who've already been diagnosed with a, a cancer, um, they're of the opinion that it's not something that could be helpful to them. So when we're talking in our genetic counseling sessions, we always highlight the uh, potential ramifications as far as treatment for a cancer. So t- sometimes it can help guide what we're doing for surgery. Um, sometimes it can make someone eligible for a targeted line of treatment, for example. So there can be implications there, as well as for that patient in the future, uh, because it might not, or it might explain why someone developed cancer in the first place, but also give us an insight into whether they're at risk for other cancers. And if that's the case, we want to make sure we're doing screening right earlier or more frequently. Um, sometimes there's surgical risk reduction as well. So the big ones for family or the big ones for the patient are for treatment or for future cancer risks. But of course, in genetics, you can't escape from families. So there is also impact for families as well, um, as far as children, parents, siblings, or even more extended relatives. uh, Because if someone does have one of these mutations, their family members would be at risk to have it as well. Great. Well, we're going to talk a lot more about the implications that it has for patients and families right after we take a short break for Medical Minute. Please stay tuned to learn more about genetic counseling with my guests, Tania Schroff and Alex McClellan. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guests, Tania Schroff and Alex McClellan. We are discussing the role of the genetic counselor, particularly when it comes to cancer. So right before the break, um, Alex was telling us about how genetic information for patients who are diagnosed with cancer can have implications for that patient in terms of their treatment, as well as future screening, as well as for their family. So Tanaya, I was hoping that you could kind of pick up there and talk to us a little bit more about what happens to the family of these patients. So let's say you have a patient who has been diagnosed with cancer and you do genetic testing on that patient and they're positive for a mutation. What implications does that have for their family? Does their family then need to be tested? Um, Do they get screened more frequently? Are there discussions that you have with the family? How does that work? And what if the family really doesn't want to know? Um, So when we have results or positive test results for our patients, you know, we do encourage them to talk to their family members about these results because it has direct implications, as Alex was mentioning. Um, Once the positive test result is found, the next step is to really test other family members to see who in the family inherited or has the same um, positive test result as was found in our patient. Um, If you think about your first degree relatives, you know, the patient's children, their siblings or their parents, they do have a 50% chance of having the same positive test result or the mutation that the patient was identified to have. um, And it kind of goes so on and so forth for other extended relatives as well. Um, So we certainly encourage our patients to discuss that information with them. 
And the next step really, rather than directly jumping to even screening those uh, family members, we want to establish if the mutation is present in those family members or not. Um, you know, in most cases where we see that the mutation is um, not present or the, the family member has tested negative for the mutation, um, in those cases, typically increased screening might not really be um, a necessary for those family members because they have inherited that risk factor from, from, the, uh, from their parents or their other family members. Um, but there are certain exceptions to that where in certain cases, you know, increased screening may still be necessary. So it certainly depends on what the mutation is and in which gene it was identified. Um, so we certainly want to talk to to our patients about the implications for their family members in details. Um, we're not always able to reach out to these family members. You know, we have had patients, family members contact us and kind of visit us for an appointment because, you know, their their uh, mother, for example, had testing and was found to have something. So we do get opportunities to talk directly with these family members, but for those who we're not able to get in touch with, um, we do as a program offer family letters um, for patients, you know, to kind of then forward those results and those letters to their family members which the family members, if they're not in the area, can take it to their own physicians or their own genetic counselors and discuss this information with them. And so, you know, Alex, so far we've been talking about, you know, either you get a positive genetic testing result that has implications or a negative one, which um, might mean that, you know, you you didn't inherit a, a, a genetic mutation. Two questions. One if you test negative for a genetic mutation, does that mean that you're in the clear? And the second question is, are there any other options between black and white, positive and negative? Do you ever get a fuzzy answer? Oh, yes. <laughs> more like or more often than we'd like, um, because genetics is in the field is relatively new. So backing up a little bit, um, we're all born with genes, the instructions for our bodies, and the genetic testing is essentially a fancy spell check for the genes. So are the genes spelled properly and working correctly, or is there a spelling error or one of these mutations in a gene that causes it not to function properly? And of course, when there is one of those spelling errors uh, in the cancer setting, we see that that's associated with an increased risk. But I always tell my patients that there is an in-between option. So different genetic variants can be interpreted differently. And the ones where we have seen an increased risk for cancer, we call them positive. But there is always the possibility that they could see a very rare genetic variant where maybe only a handful of people have been reported to have that same variant. So it's possible that that's something that's associated with an increased risk for cancer. But it's also possible that that's something that makes the person unique and maybe different from me or from you. So in that scenario, uh, we call it a variant of uncertain significance or VUS. Um, and that's probably the most frustrating answer because the answer is we don't have an answer right now, at least at this point in time. Of course, we're always looking towards the future and uh, more people are getting tested genetically, so we'll have more information out there eventually. But in the meantime, sometimes we are left with this kind of gray area or where we don't have a clear cut yes or no. 
And so just to follow up on that, Alex, do you then, if somebody does have a VUS and you say, well, we don't know at this point in time, I mean, as we get more and more information about the significance of various variants, um, do you then contact patients, say, even years later to say, you know what, back in the day, you tested positive for this VUS, and we now know that it's completely benign or that it does have some significance. Is there a way for people to actually eventually find an answer? Um, because you're looking at the the genetic literature and know the research that's coming out as we get more and more testing, but patients generally uh, aren't that close to the data. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I will say that Tanaya and I personally do recontact patients. Um, that's just part of our workflow at where we work. Um, but that's not always the case for different providers. So I think the best the best thing for a patient to do if they do get one of these uncertainties um, or a variant of uncertain significance is to connect to a genetics professional. Um, you know, if they've moved somewhere or they're changing providers, at least do it maybe every couple of years just to make sure that nothing has changed um, in that period of time because it can take, sometimes it takes months and sometimes it takes years depending on how rare this, this variant is. So we try to do our due diligence here, um, but I think uh, it takes two to tango. <laughs> so for the patient to reach out to us saying, you know, I was tested back in the day and I wanted to make sure that there weren't any changes or um, reclassifications, as we call them, for these variants, we're always happy and we certainly encourage uh, patients to do so. Great. Well, you know, Tanaya, Sometimes people are interested in getting genetic information, but they may get it in mechanisms outside of going through genetic counseling. So we know that there's, you know, direct to consumer marketing of various genetics uh, tests, uh, you know, whether it's 23andMe or Ancestry, where, you know, these companies are saying, well, we can tell you everything you need to know about your genetics and your risks. How is that the same or different from seeing a genetic counselor? Yeah, um, so we've certainly seen an increase with that. And we do have, you know, outside, as you mentioned, we have ancestry tests, which by themselves may be, by and large, are pretty accurate to a certain level in telling what population type you come from. But then there are these other tests or other companies that expand into the health space. Um, and we can broadly br break down um, these health tests as being for more complex things like, you know, fitness or diabetes, um, where it's important for a consumer to realize that these traits that they are being that are being looked at are more complex. Um, but then on the other hand, um, you know, we know that there are certain tests um, today that are being offered for a specific gene where people are interested in knowing where, whether they have an elevated risk of developing cancer. Um, the thing to know with these tests is that these tests may not necessarily be complete. Um, and the best example of this is the hereditary cancer testing for breast cancer. Um, so as Alex mentioned earlier, you know, only about 5 to 10% of all hereditary breast cancers or all cancers um, are hereditary. And then among those, you know, only a fraction occur due to mutations in BRCA1 and BRCA2. And then there are also other genes that are related to hereditary breast cancer. 
Among these BRCA1 and 2 genes, there are thousands of different genetic variants that can actually lead to hereditary breast and ovarian cancer syndrome. And a typical clinical lab that we might use has a technology that allows them to capture all of these variants. With certain direct-to-consumer companies, you know, they're only looking at three variants amongst these BRCA1 and 2 genes, and these variants are more common in the Ashkenazi Jewish population. If they find something, um, you know, it's pretty meaningful, but if they don't, that doesn't rule out a mutation in that same gene or another gene. So it's important for a consumer or a patient to know that this testing might not be complete, and then for some, it might be a challenging concept to understand. So we want our patients or consumers to know what they're testing for and more importantly, what's not being tested there. Yeah. And and so I think certainly it's important to understand that you may not get the complete picture um, and, and have all of the information you need that really puts into context your particular family history, because essentially they're doing these tests um, that, that are kind of a blanket test rather than really sitting down with the patient and, as you kind of mentioned at the top of the show, meeting them where they are, doing a thorough history, figuring out what that differential diagnosis in terms of genetic possibilities might be, and then um, moving accordingly. So, Alex, you know, one of the questions that um, might come up is, For people who know that, you know, certain genetic mutations put you at increased risk of developing cancer, have people come to you with regards to prenatal testing, Um, you know, very similar to, you know, looking for Down syndrome, um, have they kind of come to you and said, you know, I really, I have a family history of a BRCA mutation, for example, I really don't want my child to have that kind of mutation. Um, has that conversation taken place? And if so, how do you handle that? And what 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 advice do you give to patients? Ooh, that's a good question because you know typically on the day to day we're working with cancer risks, but sometimes for these cancer genes, um, if there are mutations inherited, let's say in two BRCA two genes, that's associated with a completely different. Uh, a completely different syndrome, something called Fanconi anemia. And that borders into the reproductive genetic counseling sphere because that's a childhood onset condition. And prospective parents might want to know more about that, in addition to learning about their own cancer risk if they have just one of these mutations. So we are lucky to um, have colleagues in the reproductive genetic counseling setting where we can tag team with a patient to make sure that they're receiving the appropriate counseling for cancer genetics, but also receiving the appropriate counseling for reproductive risks and uh, risks for children to either even just have one of those mutations or two, again, associated with a different type of syndrome. So we try, we try to stay in our lane here uh, because we have realized that we are specialized now in a cancer setting, but there are genetic counselors, as Tanaya was mentioning, who specialize in reproductive genetics or pediatric genetics, um, where there could be uh, there could be tests out there that we don't know about since we've graduated from school. Uh, this field is rapidly changing, so you know, I think it depends on the patient, and we 
don't want to overwhelm overwhelm patients with too much information all at the same time, but we do our best to navigate that and we understand that it can bring up a lot of emotions for for patients, um, even thinking beyond themselves when it comes to their family. Yeah. I mean, certainly genetics is a field that is continuing to move forward and we certainly get a lot of benefit from genetic counselors and talking to people like uh, you and and, uh, Tanaya. Thank you both for being on my show today. Uh, Until next week, this is Dr. Anise Chagpar wishing everyone a happy and healthy week.